0: Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen, here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland, welcome to our energising journey. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, Sam Lee Mohan. Sam is the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Frontier Energy. He has over 20 years experience in the energy and utilities industry, working across design and construction through to strategic asset management, regulation, policy, commercial, and innovation. Prior to Frontier, earlier appointments have included Head of Hydrogen for Exodus Group and Senior Manager of Innovation for ATCO. He has a wealth of experience in the sector, and I'm sure it's gonna be a fantastic and fascinating conversation. We hope you enjoy the episode. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. If you'd like to hear more about any particular areas of the industry, please direct message me on LinkedIn, and I'll do my best to make that happen. Cheers. Hey, Sam, it's good to catch up with you again. Welcome to the Exploring Hydrogen podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on the show,
0: Andy. Delighted to be here. Firstly, can you give the listeners an overview of Frontier Energy?
1: Frontier Energy is an ASX listed renewable energy company based here in Western Australia. Our flagship project is developing a 114 megawatt solar farm, which will be co located with a minimum sized 36 megawatt hydrogen production plant. Essentially, what that means is that we'll be producing Around 4.4 million kilograms of hydrogen per year, which is then expandable to around 73 million kilograms per year over time.
0: Well, wow. Frontier describes itself as a vertically integrated green hydrogen company. So, what is the extent of that integration?
1: Yeah, great question, Andy. Obviously, the market is in its infancy, and supply and demand is fundamental to actually kickstarting this industry. So Frontier Energy have embarked on rolling out a hydrogen refueling station in the CBD. We've actually placed an order with ENGV. which was actually built the Australia's first hydrogen refueling station in Canberra. So essentially, the refueling station will start construction at the end of this year, And when it's completed, it will fuel up up to 25 fuel cell electric vehicles.
0: Fantastic. And what stage is the Bristol Springs project at now? It's in a really
1: advanced stage. Some of the fundamental aspects of Bristol Springs is its location. Bristol Springs Renewable Energy Project is located 120 kilometers south of Perth. But most importantly, it is surrounded by existing world-class infrastructure. So, essentially, it's got connections onto the Southwest interconnected system. It has connections onto the water sterling trunk main. It is within five kilometers of major transport routes. So, essentially, with all of these world-class infrastructure, we were able to complete front-end engineering design, complete a really bankable commercial model as well. So, essentially, where we are at the moment is we are actively securing offtake, and that's purely our focus for the next financial year
0: 23. And I think I read somewhere that you're looking at completion around 2025, is that right? Well, that's
1: right. So all things being equal this year, securing offtake and starting early works towards the latter part of this year means that the solar farm will be commissioned during the first half of 2025. And we will then commission the hydrogen plant latter part of 2025.
0: Just to dig into some of those elements and specifics about the project a little bit more, I think you said stage one was uh, 114 megawatts, which equates to 4.4 megakilos of hydrogen output per annum. What's the rationale of progressing with that size?
1: So firstly, it's about scale economies. And what we found from our feasibility study is that with 114 megawatt solar farm, the minimum size electrolyzer that we will deploy is a 36 megawatt electrolyzer. The 36 megawatt electrolyzer can actually have a utilization rate of around 90% because we have a connection to the grid. Now, essentially, what that means is during the day, we have direct power from the solar plant that will power the electrolyzer. And at night, because we've got a grid connection, we can actually sweat the asset. But with sweating the asset, essentially, we are not turning on the electrolyzer during those peaky shoulder peak periods, which essentially means that that's when prices are high and we're not going to be buying back energy during those high price periods. So with that in mind, our utilization factor from around 90% have come down to around the 75%, which then resulted in the 4.4 million kilograms per year. And this is a minimum stage one deployment scale. Now, one of the challenging things is deploying the right technology at the right scale at the right time. And then what we can do from here as an anchor project is actually grow and continue to build that up to a gigawatt scale, which is essentially the amount of land and connections that we have. So, growing from 114 megawatt and a 36 megawatt electrolyzer in stage one, we could actually grow over time to... Just over a gigawatt.
0: That's fantastic. And perhaps we can explore that a little bit further in that the project in itself produces hydrogen, but then it's got that grid firming element, which is another advantage of what you guys are doing.
1: That's absolutely right, Andy. So essentially, having access to world class infrastructure, in my view, is fundamental to actually kickstarting this industry and having foundation projects that the industry can anchor on. Now, here in Western Australia, we have the reserve capacity markets in the wholesale electricity market. And what that grid connection actually enables us to do is arbitrage our energy. So, let's just unpack this for a few moments here. So, firstly, renewable energy, solar energy, is the cheapest form of electricity. So, that's a fact at the moment. And owning the renewable energy asset essentially means that We can use the low cost of production, low cost energy, with a direct wire to the hydrogen plant. And during the day, we can actually avoid any transmission distribution charges. We can avoid any operator charges, et cetera. And then what it also enables us to do is that any unused energy during the day, we can actually sell that into the grid, either through a structured PPA, a power purchase agreement, or we can actually sell that into the balancing market. And then at night, in order to sweat the asset and to really get the full benefit of these assets, we can actually draw power back off the grid during off-peak periods and continue to power the electrolyzer. One of the challenges we have is that we are putting in a green electron, a low carbon or a net zero electron into the grid during the day. And at night, we're actually buying back an electron that we have no idea where that electron comes from. But owning the renewable energy asset, what it actually means is that we can generate large-scale generation certificates, so LGCs. And for every megawatt hour of energy that we pull back off the grid during off-peak, we can actually retire that LGC to ensure the product is net zero. So, that's the benefit of actually having a connection to the grid. So, that means that we are using the grid as a virtual battery. But also, what's driving the low cost of production for Bristol Springs project is not only utilizing the grid as a battery, but also providing a fundamental service to the electricity grid. So, here in Western Australia, we have the reserve capacity market, and essentially, you get paid to be available. With those payments, essentially, we're spreading our operating costs across multiple value streams, which is further supporting the low cost of hydrogen being produced from Bristol Springs.
0: It's no wonder that you guys are seen as a potential anchor project, as it were, for the growth of this industry. I mean, they talk about location, 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 and what a fantastic location you have. I mean, we've spoken about a number of these elements already but again we can sort of dig into them a little bit more so close to the power infrastructure so potential to act as that battery for the grid and having that extra income and battery capacity grid firming position which you've secured access to i believe access to clean water is another major challenge for a lot of organizations so we can talk about that a little bit further you're also close to the dampier bunbury pipeline also close to the skilled workforce from perth down to bunbury so yeah if we can take one of those in turn so the access to clean water
1: A fundamental aspect of the hydrogen economy is water, especially if you're producing green hydrogen. Now, in terms of water, our site is located about 800 meters from the Stirling Trunk Main. The Stirling Trunk Main is one of the most strategic assets across Western Australia, the water that actually is transported through the sterling trunk main comes from two main sources. One of it is the southern seawater desalination plant, and the other one is from the southern dam. So essentially, we have a very reliable source of potable water. And that potable water essentially means that we don't have to install or construct and spend a lot of capex on desalination plants. We don't have to drill bores and essentially deplete our natural resources. What we have is a very stable, reliable, low-cost supply of water. Now, what we've also done is we've secured water for future stages of the hydrogen plant as well. So stage one, we've got 750 kilolitres of water per day which is almost four times the amount of water that's required for stage one. And then for stage two, in the water contract or in the water sense, we've secured 1,250 kilolitres of water per day. So essentially what that means is that we've got enough of capacity and we've secured enough of water to ensure that the anchor project, foundation project is serviced and that all future growth of the site is also catered for. In terms of the Dampier to Bunbury pipeline, that's another really interesting and very important strategic asset. Now, earlier last year, the DBNGP or Australian Gas Infrastructure Group, owns the asset, published a study which was funded by the WA government. Now, essentially what the study showed was that the pipeline from Quinana all the way to Bunbury, which Bristol Springs is right in the middle of is immediately ready for hydrogen injection. And what that means is technically, the hydrogen produced from Bristol Springs can be injected into the pipeline and will have no impact on any downstream consumers. Now, to give you an idea, downstream of our connection point is Alcoa. And Alcoa is one of Australia's largest emitters. And they also consume around 250 terajoules of energy per day. Now our stage one project produces 1.7 terajoules of energy per day. Now when you start to inject those volumes into the pipeline, the WA gas specification is not impacted at all. So what that means is that technically it is feasible to inject the hydrogen into the pipeline. And at the back end of last year, we've seen the national gas law pass the, the federal parliament and this year we anticipate the WA government accepting or adopting those changes into law here in Western Australia. So what that means is that the political environment is set in order to enable hydrogen to be injected into the pipeline, both from a a legal perspective and as well as from a technical perspective.
0: That's great. And as we've spoken about the Skill workforce from Perth down to Bunbury is fairly close by, so having those logistic challenges of getting people on a you know flying fly out or driving drive out type roster aren't, aren't there for you as well.
1: Well, that's right, and one of the real advantages that the Bristol Springs project has, it is actually can live the mantra of no citizen left behind. Now, when you consider that in the context of Collie and the retirement of the coal-fired power stations in Collie. that's actually a skilled existing workforce that can be transitioned or will be transitioned to support the renewable energy industry. And Collie being just 57 kilometers away from our site essentially means that you can travel from Collie into the construction site. And also there's potential for us in terms of operation centers, in terms of assembly lines, that can all be developed within the catchment area of Collie and Waruna, etc. Now, when you consider Colli, that's home to 8,000 people. There's a very large workforce that will transition into renewable energy, so we have access to that workforce. Secondly, is the town of Waruna, is home to about 8,000 people. Bunbury, home to around 80,000 people, and then Perth, which is only an hour 10 minutes drive. the site is home to 2.1 million people. So in terms of workforce, employment, economic prosperity, etc., this project really has that anchor project feel to it.
0: It's going to be reasonably unique then across Australia, maybe even the globe to have all those elements that are lined up. And essentially what you're saying is an anchor project, like if you guys can't get this to work commercially, then it's going to be even more difficult for some of the other industry proponents who are going to be more challenged that haven't got such a fantastic location?
1: Let me firstly start by saying that creating a low carbon hydrogen industry is not easy. It is not easy. It's not easy because you have to match supply and demand. You have to find a user for the hydrogen and then grow the infrastructure around it that is pipeline, that is storage, so that as supply and demand grows, you can actually balance the system So essentially, what you have to do is deploy the right technology at the right scale at the right time. And what we can do is then grow to gigawatt scales over that. So essentially, projects like ours have to justify the infrastructure, justify the storage, justify the supply, justify the demand. Now, in terms of those challenges, those challenges which a number of projects have, we have to look at the practicality of these projects, the constructability, the consentability of these projects. And essentially what the Bristol Springs project does, it demonstrates that with access to world-class infrastructure, we can actually provide that early mover supply and demand. And being so close to industry means that we can actually support fuel switching in these industries, we can actually start to work with governments, with industry, and to ensure that these early mover industries, these early adopters of the hydrogen are not penalized against their peers for actually being, or the peers that are not taking the hydrogen in these early stages. So what that essentially looks like is that really understanding the business model that these projects are playing. And what we've done is because of the location of our site, we've overcome a number of these barriers so that we can actually demonstrate what a a practical, a real project actually looks like, not just from a physical perspective, but also from an investor perspective.
0: And from what I was reading, you've got an extremely low cost estimate of $2.80, $2.83 per kilo of hydrogen produced. And just to give the listeners a bit of a comparison, I mean, we've had um, numerous discussions with other organisations on this podcast and the work that I'm doing through H2Q, and they're looking at somewhere between woods of $6 a kilo for green hydrogen. So just emphasises that the point that it is going to be a challenge to move the industry across to effectively, as you're saying, Sam, to create a new industry. And taking that point a bit further... I understand that you guys have got opportunity or potential to reduce those costs even further so perhaps you can talk about some of the mechanisms behind the meter power supply or reducing your water costs that sort of thing
1: yeah sure it's a really good point andy so access first of all what bristol springs is doing is it's really working within the boundaries of existing market mechanisms so as I've explained here in Western Australia, we have access to the reserve capacity markets and that connection onto the grid enables us to actually support the electricity grid, support the electricity sector. Now, what that does is that provides additional revenue into the project. And that enables us to, certainly in the early phases or stage one, is to use that revenue to net off some of our operating costs. The second aspect is that Owning the renewable energy asset and then co-locating the renewable energy asset with the hydrogen production plant means that we have a very low operating cost. So in essence, during the day when we are producing electricity from the sun and we have a direct connection, a direct cable to our hydrogen production plant, and also we have access to the reserve capacity markets, notwithstanding that we also have the ALFAS and FCAS markets as well here in WA. Now, when you factor in these existing market mechanisms, our daytime operating cost, our energy input cost is negative. It's actually minus $15 a megawatt hour. And then what you do is at night, when you are pulling energy off the grid through this virtual battery that we have through that connection, essentially that nighttime energy is $50 to $60 a megawatt hour which is now bringing our energy cost into the electrolyzer, around about an average of around $35 a megawatt hour. And when you factor in the low cost of energy, that's a material impact to the low cost of producing the hydrogen. Now, in our modeling, we've got a low cost of production of $2.83 a kilogram. And what that accounts for as well is $166 million for the solar farm and around $72 million for the hydrogen plant. Now, when the capex is paid off, our operating cost is actually $1.50. Now, $1.50 is very, very comparable to natural gas. It's actually around $10 a gigajoule. Now, when you consider scale economies, and as you actually have sunk CapEx in the common use infrastructure, the behind the meter switchyard, you have your electrolysis plant, and with scale, the capex is also dropping with scale. And what we find is that when we actually get up in the thirties and the forties, when the plant is expanded to around a gigawatt scale, that operating cost is dropping to as low as a dollar twenty, a dollar thirty. Wow. Now that is very material because the important thing with these foundation projects is that it has longevity. So it's not just about the stage one. It's actually a clear pathway to clear pathway to commercialization where over time, as you expand the facility, the operating cost will continue to come down. And as it continues to come down, that'll benefit the suppliers, benefit the off-takers, et cetera. And as a whole, lower those hurdles, lower those thresholds for For new incumbents lower the threshold because remember these early projects they're justifying the infrastructure they're justifying the storage they're justifying the supply and demand
0: how's the project been seen within the local community is there any hesitancy is uh, everyone fully on board any concerns that have been raised to you from the community
1: yeah that's a really good question andy we've done a community engagement session at the back end of last year and the project was really well received so The land itself is freehold land, and so there's no title issues, no red tape around the land. Economic prosperity, so bringing jobs, it's about creating value, it's about long-term jobs, it's about high-paying jobs, it's about renewable energy transition, it's about school leavers that now will be enticed to actually stay in the region as opposed to moving away from the region into the city to get good high-paying engineering jobs, for example. The community is very supportive of the project. There's great value that's being attributed to it. And certainly from a government perspective, we've got lead agency status from the Department of Jobs, Tourism, Science and Innovation. The project is actually seen as a a state-significant project and we are meeting with government on a fortnightly basis to work through any of the potential challenges that may come.
0: I think I read somewhere that you're looking around sort of 300 jobs during the construction phase, around 50 in, in operations, and you say those are highly skilled type positions. Do you see any challenges there of where the, the skills gaps might be for the future?
1: Yeah, I'll actually unpack, if I may, specific to our project and then some of the macro challenges that could occur. So, in terms of the 300 jobs during construction, and construction is highly unlikely to stop. So, you know, by the time you get to stage one and you're commissioned, you know, the business case will be there for expansion and construction will, will continue until you hit that 1.1, 1.2 gigawatts scale. So over the next five to ten years we see a continuous flow of construction jobs being created and supported. In terms of solar skill sets are quite mature. but in the hydrogen sense, handling of hydrogen, it's the regulatory compliance, the approvals, the engineering, etc. these sorts of skill sets will require a transition of mechanical electrical engineers, you know power systems engineers will be quite important to this hydrogen industry. And what that essentially means is that projects like ours, early-mover projects, will provide the basis for educating and for skilling and upskilling. Now, when you consider challenges, it would be remiss of me to actually mention other countries. So we've got the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which is driving investment. It's driving supply chains, to be focusing in the US. Europe has one of the, or UK rather, has one of the best or most progressive political environments for projects. So top talent, we run the risk of top talent looking abroad, moving abroad, to actually go and develop these projects. So it is a race that we have. The hydrogen economy is a race. Our policies, our legislation is quite progressive. We are moving quite fast. We are not far behind, in my view, the UK and the US. And I think what's going to be important is where governments really start to look at projects on a project-by-project basis, start looking at you know, the, the constructability, the consentability, the reality of these projects, back these projects so that we can actually move ahead with the projects we can start getting these resources and start the upskilling, start the transition, create the environment so that our workforce stays here and support our projects because there's enough of work in this industry.
0: Really good point, Sam. That's excellent and important to consider the micro and, and the macro. And in the same vein, are there any learnings that you could perhaps share of what Frontier has been through to this point that might help the other people involved in our industry. Is there anything you can sort of share to that effect?
1: Sure. What I will say is that investors are actively looking to support projects in the sector. But what they also need to understand, they need to understand the business model and the risk framework is appropriate for that investment. In this way, looking to develop projects in environments where political environment is actually conducive to these projects, looking at legislated emissions reduction targets, looking at policy positions. So to give you an example, in January, it was announced that government will legislate a net zero target by 2050. But importantly, it's also legislate that all government-owned emissions, if you like, will be reduced by 80% to its 2020 levels by 2030. Now, what that does is it provides incentive, it provides a policy positions that actually can support early demand for hydrogen. And also at the back end of last year, the WA government announced a 1% target of renewable electricity from hydrogen. So what that will provide is that demand stimulus. So essentially, the advice I'd give is really look at the political environment to develop these projects, and then look at areas where you can have, it goes without saying that if you have world-class infrastructure, or if you have infrastructure, water, electricity, and land, it sounds obvious that you would actually look at these things, but not just having A location that's surrounded by the infrastructure, but making sure that you can actually access the infrastructure. So, for example, Bristol Springs have the Sterling trunk main running right past and I'm ex-water corporation person. And what I do know is that it is extremely difficult and rare to get a connection onto a trunk main, but it just so happens that Bristol Springs, the pipeline as it runs past Bristol Springs project has an existing connection point so that existing connection point was put in when the asset was constructed. So essentially, it made the decision quite easy for water corporation to provide the access.
0: Um, oh, how good is that? <laughs>
1: absolutely. And in the same point on the electricity network, we have the Landweir terminal that is an unconstrained part of the West Interconnected System. If you know the landscape here in Western Australia, north of Perth is wind country. It's a fantastic resource but there's some serious investment required to upgrade the electricity systems to enable these assets to be connected. And where we are at Bristol Springs, we are on a 330 kV line and a 330 kV switchyard, and there's five access points onto that terminal, into that terminal. Three of those access points was already given to existing connections, and then the remaining two frontier energy and our sister company, Varuna Energy, which we have a collaboration agreement, have secured. So essentially, there is no other connections onto the grid at that point. So these connections, so it's having infrastructure is great. And as projects move forward, it will continue to justify common use infrastructure. And as more investment go into these common use infrastructure, ultimately, that hurdle of entry will be lowered.
0: And what are the biggest challenges for you as an organisation at this point then?
1: I like to put the industry in the context of practicality, real projects. I'm an engineer. My background is mechanical engineering. And whenever I think of the hydrogen industry, I actually think of it from in the context of real projects, the practicality, coming back to the point on constructability, consentability, investability, etc. And once you overcome these things, you actually now start to look at how advanced are you in the context of the industry, in the maturity of the industry. And the challenge that we are seeing at the moment is that we are ready to contract. We are ready to supply that hydrogen. And securing offtake is key. It's absolutely fundamental to us taking a final investment decision. Now, are the off-takers actually ready to contract? How fast are they moving? So there is a lot of interest. We've got so much of interest from super majors, from industrial users that are looking to fuel switch. But the pace at which they move is challenging. And what they are seeing is that what are the penalties that they will have in being a first mover off-taker? And they are looking to governments to say, What are the business models? How does government actually support us in being a first mover, off-taker? And then governments will need to look at, we've got the right policy settings, we create the right policy, a political environment, but what is the government's affordability envelope? What does the affordability envelope actually look like to support these off-takers to move these projects to the next level? Now, to give you an example of what I know experts, I'll talk at a high level on this. When I look at the Inflation Reduction Act, the affordability envelope was $3 a kilogram, but it's actually based on carbon intensity of the product, of the commodity. So essentially, if if your product hits net zero and it's zero carbon, you get $3 a kilogram. If you've got some carbon intensity in your project, Then you move to the next, the lower level threshold, reduces that $3 by $0.60, and then it keeps going until it's zero. So essentially, that affordability envelope, what it does is it protects and it provides the business model necessary for those off-takers. So the challenges we see is we are ready to contract. We have low cost production. We have a clear pathway where as we expand, we'll compete very favorably with incumbent Fuels and enable that fuel switch, but it's the pace, it's the timing of those offtakes.
0: Appreciate you might not be able to comment on this too much, cognizant of where you're at with those offtake discussions, but is there discussion about some kind of risk sharing agri- arrangements with some of these organizations?
1: I think that's absolutely fundamental. I think it's a sharing of risk and a lot of organizations, super majors, etc., they've got mandated net zero targets. We've seen a lot of tier one super majors invest quite heavily in hydrogen. And these investments are, are very strategic in these early stages. Now, in terms of where we see the offtake coming from, the unique aspect again of Bristol Springs is its location to industry its location to major routes, its location to the pipelines, etc. cetera. So we see LNG producers being able to be first movers and being able to actually take the hydrogen. And with an LNG producer taking the hydrogen, because we are so close to the pipeline, an LNG producer can actually do a virtual swap arrangement where they take the hydrogen, include it in their energy portfolio, and then they could export that energy in the form of LNG and enjoy some merchant or spot market pricing on LNG that will enable them to absorb some of these earlier risks with the premium price of hydrogen at this stage. But because we've got the pipeline, we actually have a transportation medium for the hydrogen And we also have what is potentially could be a demand sink as well for the hydrogen. Now, if you then pivot and say what other markets you can serve, when you talk about flexible power generation, when you talk about energy storage, system security, because we've got a connection onto the grid, putting in a hydrogen peaking plant that can provide grid stability and dispatchable energy as in when it's required, that flexible demand, that flexible power generation, that is another real market opportunity we see from the Bristol Springs project. So, hydrogen can be produced, can be stored, and then dispatched during peak periods. So, it's peak lopping or peak shifting, if you like. That's an opportunity. The other opportunities we see as well is transport sector. So, Notwithstanding that we are five kilometers away from a major freeway that connects north and south, and it's all fully made up roads from the freeway to our site. means that hydrogen can be moved into refueling stations across the state. So that's another sector that we can unlock as well. And we are 50 kilometers from the port of Bunbury. We are 67 kilometers away from the port of Quinana. So there's routes to the export markets as well. Now in terms of derivatives, again, when you look at the low operating cost, the low cost of production of $2.80, and as we actually expand and get down to that $1.50, that $1.20 around there, that's really unlocking the ammonia industry as well. So these sorts of derivatives are real opportunities from the Bristol Springs project. But just coming back to the point, I think that, in my view... The most likely offtake parties are going to be in the LNG production side and power generation.
0: It's an interesting point that you made about the road transport side. We've had uh, Toll on as a guest of the podcast previously, and I think one of the frustrations from their side is they get a lot of approaches from different organizations of uh, energy production and they're miles away from the main transport route. So I guess a frustration from their side that they don't understand the market, but it sounds like, again, you guys are so close to that major infrastructure route.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Logistic companies, I've read a lot of reports been in this industry for 10, 15 years now in the hydrogen industry and all my career has been in the energy sector. So I've read a lot of reports and I must admit in my view, there's a lot of, if I can put it quite bluntly, you know, there's a lot of pie in the sky and in England we'd be saying a lot of waffle around projects and the practicality of these projects. The reality is that, in my view, is that transport is definitely a sector, especially heavy haulage, long distance transport. There's significant benefits to be had in pivoting or moving into a hydrogen economy. And what we're seeing is that the barriers is infrastructure barriers. So it's infrastructure barriers, and then it's this chicken and egg sort of thing. So it's infrastructure barrier. Number one, then it's supply of hydrogen to these infrastructures that actually provides the business case and models etc for the OEMs to start to deploy and to manufacture more of these vehicles so it's sort of the chicken and egg sort of thing as the industry starts to mature and if you look at the wa government legislating it's reducing its emissions 80% to its 2020 levels by 2030 that would include qualified power stations transitioning It'll include public transport, so that's trains, buses, uh, utility vehicles, etc. So these sorts of legislations will actually support that demand stimulus. It will create that demand stimulus. But equally important, it will provide logistics companies also some, what they're looking for is peace of mind on reliability. They want to make sure that there's some way that I can fuel up And it's not going to cost me 10 times the amount of diesel or petrol or whatever fuel they're using at the moment. So the industry will mature over time. And I can certainly see it from their perspective as well in terms of the maturity of the industry in order for them to commit real dollars in procuring these heavy haulage and long distance vehicles so they can put them on the road. So infrastructure, supply, and the right political settings is key. And in my view, I can see I can see that coming to fruition between 25 and leading up to 30.
0: Just leading on from that, I always ask the guests on the Exploring Hygiene podcast, where do you see the organization in five years? So it sounds like phase one is going to be completed while well on the way to phase two, so the one gigawatt output. Have you got any other projects on the horizon or you know any further focus beyond that?
1: It's a good question, Andy. Thank you for that. So yeah, by 2025, And moving beyond that, we see us producing hydrogen in a very commercial setting, also starting expansion to either doubling the capacity as a minimum, and also having at least an industrial refueling hub also operational over the next five years. And that's building on the early investment we're making on the hydrogen refueling station here in the CBD. So growing from there, it's about expanding the solar farm. It's about expanding the hydrogen production plant. And what Bristol Springs project has really also given us, it's a blueprint that we can then redeploy across other jurisdictions as well. So we'll continue looking at other opportunities. And what Bristol Springs project does, giving us that blueprint, is really expediting how we can roll out more of these projects into the future.
0: That's great. And just in closing, is there any other information that you'd like to share with the audience? And how can the audience follow what Frontier is doing?
1: Yeah, it's, Frontier Energy is a public listed company. So we provide constant updates, a constant news flow, to sign up for our newsletters, etc. through our website, reach out to us at, at, at any point as well. What I would like to say is just coming back to the point of A government perspective, from an investor perspective, is really look at the practicalities of projects. Really look at the constructability, the consentability. Really look at the business model and the future of these projects. Focus on those things, and ultimately investors, governments, etc., they'll need to start picking winners and really backing these projects because once you start to back these projects, it will lower the hurdles for future. It'll actually transition us. Because this is a race. The race is on and Europe and the US, etc., is moving quite fast. And we're not far behind. We're not far behind. If anything, we're keeping our pace. But the next five years is going to be quite important to ensure that we have real projects that are making real green hydrogen or low carbon hydrogen. And the business models in terms of the supply and demand is operating in is actually conducive to a a very stable hydrogen economy.
0: Thanks once again, Sam, for your time. That's fascinating. I'm sure the listeners will have uh, learned a lot throughout that discussion. I wish you all the best with your endeavors with the project. Um, To all the listeners, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you, Andy. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the hydrogen journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time.